This is Draco Malfoy and the House of Black, part three of the Mirror of Isidiru series by Star Bridget. Chapter 14. The Quidditch Cup. Once Lupin had Hagrid hustling off again, quite contentedly from the sound of it, he returned to the hut, dispersing the fog inside with a wave of his wand. He looked down, and Draco saw at the same time as Lupin that Black had escaped with his wand in tow. Only the talon wand rested on the ground. Draco would have told him not to touch it, if he could speak. Draco expected the worst, ludicrously enough, when Lupin raised his wand towards his prone form, but all he got was a finite incantatum. Remember, he told himself with a mad laugh inside, he's one of the good guys. He just thinks Sirius Black is a murderous madman. Draco swore he now believed Black guilty and that he would never assist Black and Lupin let him go. Lupin did no worse than swear Draco to silence and send him back to Slytherin, wiping his eyes angrily several times as he did. Without Lupin asking him to, Draco even swore on his mother that he would never contact his disgraced relative again then picked up his wand and was only too grateful to run. He ran right to the Owlery to write a letter to his disgraced relative. He ended up writing more letters. Hagrid's new companion Meatball had vanished as soon as he had come. No more pet Grim to feed. Draco was left with a vanished rat, no Uncle Sirius in need of help, and not even a wronged Potter, who was subdued and cowed in keeping his distance and it was a pathetic thing. How depressing Draco found it, to send a valentine like he had to Potter, and not get cursed or even yelled at for it. He missed Potter. Potter showed up, at least, to Draco's match against Hufflepuff, though Draco didn't have to ask Hermione to know who Potter was rooting for. Draco had worse things on his mind than Potter wishing him ill, Things heavy enough to make a schoolboy Quidditch match seem as absurd as Black's wild snowdrops. He had sent three owls so far, and Black hadn't sent an answer to any. It was child's play to beat Diggory when playing against a seeker who had not already played out this exact match. Draco had caught the snitch the first time, and he did again, although the score of 210 to 80 didn't exactly bode as well as it could for their overall points tally. But from the looks of the match, things would only have worsened for the Nimbusless Slytherin team. It was the first time Draco had ever caught the snitch and not felt an ounce of joy from it. He thought idly of transfiguring it to some flower, perhaps a golden approximation of snowdrops to throw in Lupin's direction, if he felt like being murdered on this fine, brisk February afternoon. All he did was go through the motions, repeating the blue loop, though he celebrated with less excitement than he should have. His eyes kept anxiously seeking out Potter in the Gryffindor section, the self-consciousness imposed by the juxtaposition of blue and red lines, worsened by his projection of Potter watching him. That damnable obsession never left him, imagining what Potter saw when he looked at him. That was never contented but at least not driven to full-pitch blackness, as long as Potter was still looking. So Draco celebrated, lifting the snitch in the air, and blew a kiss to a truly bemused-looking Diggory, all because Potter was looking. Even if the presence of Remus Lupin's eyes on him, not far from Potter's, made him feel like a traitor to so many things he didn't even understand. So he had sworn, on his mother's life, He'd leave off the serious mission, and kept his word until his first opportunity to break it. Lupin didn't know that. Not that it was even in the top ten worst things he'd ever done, even in the red line. There was that attempt to murder Uncle Sirius with Sectum Sempra, and there was no point in cataloguing his mistakes. The tea leaves had been eloquent enough about him at the start of the year. The alligator the hidden betrayer. But he would never betray Hermione. That was his rock, his only cornerstone. They remained on the same side, waiting to hear from Black, and waiting. 
Ron turned 14 before they heard from Black. Draco was gearing up to play Ravenclaw before they heard from Black. March flew past, and sign-ups for Easter break went around the Slytherin common room before they heard from Black. Draco's one aborted attempt sneaking out of Hogwarts and apparating at Grimald showed the place empty and unchanged, save for the eerie feeling that there may be a very unhappy house-elf somewhere in the shadows. Hermione told him that without any sign of scabbers for weeks, they had to consider the prospect he had completely fled Hogwarts, and with that came the prospect they would simply never hear from Black again, and this would remain an uncomfortable secret between just them and Dobby, as long as they lived. Maybe, she said, Something awful had happened to Black, though they would have heard if he'd been caught, or Black had just given up. No, he's regrouping, Draco insisted, even after his chronicle of the scene with Lupin left Hermione shaking her head. Maybe he just needs time to recover from seeing Lupin. Yeah, it was rough, but he'll be back around. We'll come up with a new plan. We'll get Pettigrew. We'll kill the motherfucker. Then we'll be the ones to introduce Potter to his cool new godfather. He admitted to Hermione his lack of motivation against Ravenclaw, though he couldn't admit how much his sense of dread was spurred on by the Blue Loop. Their narrow win had been just too small last time to propel them past Gryffindor. Admittedly, this time around they had another victory under their belt, against Gryffindor itself, but they also had worse brooms, entirely thanks to Draco. Nor had they any control how that last Gryffindor-Hufflepuff match would go, with the points permutations making it eminently possible Slytherin could win all their matches and still lose the cup. He was beginning to agree with Thomas that the PPG system for football made far more sense. Hermione advised Draco ask Severus for permission to take a late-night ride for his nerves. Friday night saw him flying sweeps around the empty Quidditch stands, trying to ignore the distant presence of Dementors. He liked to think this year would have been different if there just hadn't been that pull of Dementors always reminding him of Azkaban. He would have been different, more charming, less forcibly unlikable would have straightened out this whole sordid mess with rats months ago, and have nothing heavier to weigh down his flight than the prospect of facing Cho Chang mere weeks after convincing the entire school that Harry Potter fancied her. I don't fancy Cho Chang, you know. It seemed to be the air itself delivering this information to Draco, albeit in the most unwanted voice of Harry Potter. Then the invisibility cloak was thrown off and aside, and Potter and his school broom rose in the air, the early spring air rippling at his hair and making his scar flicker in and out of view in the moonlight. So, if you're going to taunt that poor girl tomorrow, Malfoy, don't bother, all right? Is it really funny if it's so completely off base? I don't like her. Draco made a face at him watching Potter's slight form in that green Weasley jumper, with as much distaste as he could muster, for something so much the opposite of distasteful. The trouble with spending so much time avoiding Potter, and being avoided in turn, was that he had grown unused to the sheer force of Potter's presence when they were alone. Especially this completely alone, in Potter's element, in the air. He was equally glad he had his wand in his pocket, and that his broom was far faster than Potter's. Don't you? I don't, Potter protested, not getting red the way he should have if he was at all lying. I don't know where you even got that idea. I don't know either, Potter, Draco drawled, letting his broom come to a halt hovering there in the sky, though it was ready to rocket back into motion in a second's notice. He remembered Potter and Diggory all chummy as Triwizard champions, remembered Ginny Weasley filling in as Seeker, and let a twisted smile take over his face. Could it be your weakness for Seekers?
Potter turned as red as could be. I, um, I don't, um, I don't know what you... Listen, Hermione said you were going out flying and maybe you could use some company, so... Draco and that traitorous Gryffindor would be exchanging words tomorrow. What do you want, Potter? Draco sighed and flew a flew loops between the nearest set of hoops, staring at their copper sheen in the moonlight. You've defended the honour of your benighted lady love, Miss Chang. You can even tell Hermione you've helped with my so-called anxiety. Will you leave me to my practice now, before you're caught out of hours and I'm blamed, or Dementors descend and I'm somehow expelled for your ineptitude? I can feel them, a red-faced Potter said, looking confused and raking a hand through his air. Naturally, he would leap at any aspersions cast on his bravery. I can feel them all, in the distance and it makes me colder. But I've gotten better at the Patronus charm, so I can protect you if they come, Draco. I'm useful for that, at least. Oh, so you're here for my protection, Draco drawled, kicking at the edge of a hoop. Good to know. I'm sure falling unconscious from your broom will provide an excellent diversion. And... You're really difficult to get on your own these days, you know that. Potter interrupted, raking a hand through his hair again and again, his broom completely still. I snuck out because it's impossible to get a chance to talk to you. Fine then, Potter. I'm a captive audience. What is it you want to say to me? Go ahead, talk. Potter stared at him, lips parted. Um... He said eloquently, I think, uh, I forgot. But Draco snort, he'd flushed darker and hurried to add, but I did bring something. He held up a practice snitch from his pocket. I didn't intend to practice by myself tonight, Draco said with a sigh. And if I wanted a snitch, I could summon one myself. But I appreciate the sentiment, Potter. Believe me. Play me, Potter blurted. Just you and me, one-on-one -on -one for the snitch. The night's clear, the moon's out. We can still find it. A scrimmage, like the first time we played. Why, Potter? Draco drawled. Are you challenging me to another midnight duel? I suppose. And what is your cause this time? And should I expect more infractions of the rules to follow? Potter's green eyes almost seemed to glimmer and spark out light in the night air, at the reminder of first year and the duel he'd so illicitly won. No cheating, I promise. Just Quidditch. He took the snitch and held it up, letting Draco see how it picked up the light. Scared, Malfoy. You wish, Draco said, before his own self-protection instincts could kick in, to save him the pain of getting obliterated by Potter when he didn't even need to be. Well, maybe he could hope for the Dementals to come knock Potter out of the sky for him again. At this point, he'd count it as a win. So Potter let the snitch go, and they flew. They played best of three, which was convenient since Potter was the first one to catch it. It barely took any time at all, with Potter never seeming to lose sight of the thing. Somehow, even after Draco got on his tail, Potter beat him to it on his inferior broom. You're supposed to wait a moment after you let it go, Potter, Draco yelled and Potter insisted after on not counting that as a point for him, even when Draco told him he should. That meant, of course, that it took three catches for Potter to officially beat Draco instead of just two. But at least it was officially two to one, and Potter's next two took longer. Potter was better at spotting the snitch, but Draco found he had just as much fun getting in Potter's way as trying to get it himself. Potter might be taking this more seriously than Draco was. He thought of some of Cho Chang's moves 
and flew his broom right in the way of Potter a few times to block his dives, rather than joining him in them at a disadvantage. Potter yelped in outrage, but did not attempt to plough through him like Draco would have. Instead, he circled back around, and after the first few times, he was no longer glowering, but laughing. When Draco caught sight of the snitch, and dove the next time, Potter blocked him off rather than diving with him, and laughed harder at Draco's flummoxed expression. Potter was a quick study, and seemed comfortable returning Draco's tricks once he got the feel of them outside a real game. Draco's elbowing and shoving at the side when they dove and flew together was soon being returned by Potter's superior physical strength in another reminder of first year, except there was so much laughter even in demental thinned air, and Draco had the singular indignity of realising how very much of that laughter was also his own. Potter almost looked disappointed to beat Draco to the snitch the last time, jumping clean off his broom to execute an impossible-looking catch and somersaulting down to the grass. Draco landed on the ground in disbelief and cast his gaze down at the muddied but triumphant Potter at his feet, who rolled over with dirt on his face and grass in his messy hair. Draco shoved the school broom away from them with his foot, reckoning Potter was lucky not to have broken it in his fall. But the impact had somehow left both it and Potter undamaged. Just like the snitch, the air, the ether, the moon that lit up the snitch for him. Even the cold, hard ground was in love with Potter. Well, no, Potter said glumly, bright, fierce eyes dimming as he looked down at the sullied snitch in his hand. I caught the snitch. Yes, Draco said with a sigh. And that means the scrimmage is over, so you can stop trying to break your neck and saddle the Slytherin with blame, Potter. Sound good to you, unless that's your strategy, to tire out your opponent the night before his match. From the horror on Potter's face that hadn't so much as occurred to his honourable mind, Oh no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean... Oh, you're just giving me a hard time, aren't you? He realised and made a face up at Draco. Will you please help me up? Draco made a delicately scrunched up face back down at him. You're filthy and I'm still clean, he said, brushing his hands over his robes to demonstrate as if that was a manner of pride and not embarrassment when Potter had been the one always to triumph. Ah, Potter! No, you're not, Potter said with a grin as he seized Draco's hanging hand. Don't know why you want this hand to help you up, Draco observed dispassionately and held up the palm to the light, smearing the mud aside to show off the clear letters of thief in Potter's handwriting. Touching it must make you even dirtier. I don't mind, Potter said fumblingly. Um, touching you. And that marked it as long past time for everyone to adjourn for the night. Ravenclaw was slaughtering Slytherin, absolutely slaughtering them, just as badly as Draco remembered from the first time, although the lack of superior brooms had to be making it worse. Draco didn't remember the exact score this many years later, but he thought he would have remembered at any time falling down 120 nil to Ravenclaw. A Ravenclaw that been, had already been soundly beaten this year by both Hufflepuff and Gryffindor. The realisation of just how bad Draco's team was should not have been as surprising as it was, but on that crisp March day, the sky so offensively blue, its density almost made it look dark enough to be Ravenclaw blue. There was no keeping himself from glancing down and seeing exactly how outclassed Flint's band of glorified thugs was. Ravenclaw had tactics, see. Slytherin couldn't handle it if you had tactics. At least Draco had tactics of his own, 
comprised as those were by his compulsive need to glance over at the red mass of the Gryffindor stands every few minutes to make sure Potter was still there watching. He also caught himself glancing over at the Malfoy Invincible banner, held up with pride in the Slytherin stands this match too. Draco's tactics had been caught between trying to catch the snitch where he remembered, although that memory was vague, somewhere high in the clouds, and trying to stall to give Slytherin a chance to recoup some of the points. But the sight of the snake slaughterhouse unfolding made him realise that waiting was risking that rare situation where a snitch catch was still not enough to win a match. So he caught the snitch, plucking it out of the sky, and when he landed, the excitement that greeted him personally was greater than he had expected, greater than the first time by far. The team lifted him up on their shoulders, carrying him about the pitch, without any of the boos or whistles Draco might have expected from the other houses. Malfoy, Flint said breathlessly. You did it with the first seeker in years to catch the snitch in all three of his games. So it was that the school hailed Draco as more truly Malfoy invincible, the banner seeming less ironic. All the unhappiness towards him over the points for being mistaken as Sirius Black melted away, as the points from his snitch catches more than made up for it. And for once, the Slytherins all chose to remember his 70-point contribution to winning the House Cup the last time they had in first year. Only Pansy held back warily in the celebrations from the stands, and later in Slytherin House that followed. Somehow they all seemed to consider the Quidditch Cup essentially won. It's a 200-point margin on Gryffindor, Bowl enthused, and 220 on Hufflepuff. There's no way either of them will get a wide enough margin to catch up. Malfoy Invincible! The calls of Malfoy Invincible began around the snake fireplace, but Draco's mind was full of the glimpse he'd caught of Remus Lupin in the stands, watching him be carried about celebrating with an unreadable look on his face. Even with him in Gryffindor near Potter, for once Draco's gaze had gone somewhere other than the boy who lived. Draco could project anything onto that deceptive blank screen of a professor the man could pose, and his heart had thought he'd read judgment in that stare that he could see Draco as the undeserving fraud he was, the imposter, the thief. A butterbeer was pressed into Draco's hand, and a deliriously happy Theo came up to let him know all the threats against their families were officially forgiven. He'd made up for it with his catches. Draco forced his best smile for his once lover, though it was impossible to tell himself the cheering and festivities were for him. Lupin was the only one who had seen the scene clearly as it was. Pity, then, that he couldn't have shown such discernment in reading the nature of Sirius Black. For Salazar's sake, the man had gathered him snowdrops. Oh, Draco realised with a start, as Theo wrapped an arm around his shoulder and sat him close to their fellow third years. Oh, that's it. Black was in love with him and that's why he was ready to sit there and let Lupin kill him, sooner than let him not forgive him. From the pictures of Black as a teenager, along with Severus's memory, if Lupin had even had a spark of interest in men, it was hard to believe that attachment hadn't been at least slightly reciprocated, if perhaps never consummated. Lupin had let Black go, after all, while still believing him guilty of the death of three of his only friends in the world, two indirectly, and one by his own wand. If Draco wanted to get control of this situation back, here was a lever to use. So, Draco found himself sneaking out of the dungeons far past midnight. The night of his victory over Ravenclaw buzzed on Butterbeer for liquid courage, and climbing to the Owlery, where he sent off yet another letter to Black. It was much the same as all the others, urgings to get back in touch with him and Hermione, and assurances they could still yet find Pettigrew and clear Black's name. Except, instead of writing, we can even clear your name to Lupin, he wrote, Lupin has come around, Uncle Sirius. He says he believes you now, 
and that he's sorry about sending you away. He said all he wants is the chance to see you again. He wants me to arrange for the two of you to meet. Hermione thought arranging an actual meeting was a terrible idea and talked him out of it in minutes. But if they really did once love each other, then he should listen eventually, Draco tried, and Hermione just shook her head. What we need, she said, is proof. It's always been proof. Don't arrange a meeting. Once he's back in Hogsmeade as Padfoot, you need to find him and tell him you were lying. Convince him to work with us again and maybe he'll forgive you. Telling Black that he'd lied about Lupin's forgiveness was rather like telling Father in the blue line that he'd gotten marks lower than Hermione. Draco could see he'd ripped the man's heart out and stomped it to pieces, but he told himself he didn't need to feel sorry after what Black had done to Severus. All of this was his penitential walk, and the more suffering in purgatory, the more complete his redemption. That was the kind of idea that might appeal to Gryffindors. I know, that's why you stopped writing back to me, Draco prodded. But you have to see, Uncle Sirius, that just because you love Professor Lupin, and he thinks you're a remorseless dark wizard who murdered all your friends, doesn't mean he'll always think you're a remorseless dark. I don't! Black exclaimed violently, then looked around to be sure no one had heard, slumping down in rags that looked even more tattered and ragged than before. He also looked thinner, his sunken chest with its tattoos bared almost skeletal, and at that sight Draco had to keep fighting back a sheer physical sense of pity. Don't laugh, Remus, Black insisted, but in a wrenching, wretched way that couldn't have been more obvious than if he'd leapt onto a nearby trash receptacle to scream of his love to the moon. Hermione, Draco lied, has loads of great ideas, you'll see, so at least stick around long enough to meet up with her, all right? I'll sneak out of the castle and bring you extra food. Well, not this weekend, because it's Easter holidays and I have to go home. But after that, I will. You'll see. Black stayed. Perhaps that brief illusion of hope that Lupin believed him had been enough to rouse him from whatever hole he had crawled in to die. And Draco had to tell Hermione who at first was overjoyed to the point of compromising their secrecy that Draco's plan had worked to get Black back. She was less impressed with him when he said she had to come up with at least the semblance of some brilliant plan to present Black when they all met after Easter. But she said she'd try. After all, Draco wasn't staying over the holidays, and Draco did happen to be her only friend at the moment. Draco stopped by Ravenclaw on his way out, and wished Luna a happy Easter, along with giving none-too-subtle hints that she should try and hang out with Hermione over break. Going home for break had been a mistake. Draco knew it as soon as he set foot in the manor, where he had spent less time in truth almost than in Grimald over winter break, and found Father right at the door waiting for him. "'Father?' Draco said, drawing back dismayed, and Father looked darkly amused to see Draco had put the nearest open door between them and shoved his hand into his pocket. Stop that, Father said. Show me your hands. And then the first major look of disappointment crossed his still handsome visage, the rigours of Azkaban waiting in his future, leaving him untouched for now, a long-haired vision of ideal Malfoy purity. Why does your wand hand say thief on the palm? Did your wand do that to you? Because you are not its rightful owner. I've gotten a tattoo, Draco said brightly, only to see from the abject terror on his father's face that he believed him. No, father, I'm sorry. It was just an accident. A prank parchment from the school that I got on myself. My fault, no one else's. And no, I'm not overly inclined to visit the cellars with you to discuss it in more detail. You, 
father said. Are going to Ollivander's with me, prank writing or not, is that understood? Draco shook his head vigorously. I don't think that's such a good idea, if you talked about it with mother. Mother stepped up to father, putting a hand on his arm which gave Draco a flash of the bent brand on her hand. Still, she looked even more lovely than she had at Christmas, in flowing deep pink springtime robes, the shade of dying cherry blossoms. I have spoken with him, Draco, and we agree on this. As unpleasant as the last visit was, we've been corresponding with Ollivander, and he believes he may have found a solution. This want has not been good for you. So, this was an ambush? No, Draco said firmly, thief hand sliding back into his robe pocket and stroking over the bend in his wand compulsively. No, I'm not going, and you can't force me. It was in our deal that I go in the summer. Our deal, father said, was in the spirit that you attempt to correct this situation, Draco, which we both believe is not safe for you. We want to help you. Along those lines, I understand that a friend of yours is having some difficulty in the courts. What was his name? Haggard? A fitting one. You! Draco breathed and turned pleadingly to Mother. I should have known he was all behind this. Still, he almost said, he found himself getting so angry. Father's the one behind the hypocrite's trial, isn't he? I thought that because I wasn't even involved, because Blaze isn't even my friend, I'm not even in that class, I thought, there's no way you'd stoop to squabbling over a creature. But Hagrid is my friend, and father's gone after him because of me and you've let him. Draco, mother said, stroking his left hand in a manner she seemed to imagine he would find soothing. Sweetheart, you've got it all wrong. It's Mrs. Zabini who's been pressing this. Do you know the kind of pull that woman has with the school governors? Especially after your father stepped down. She's the one who heard about her son being mauled and took up this vendetta. Even though Blaze doesn't want her to? Draco snapped. Although the look his parents exchanged made it clear they, and perhaps Mrs. Zabini, all knew exactly why it was that Blaze didn't want her to pursue it. I'm not behind this, Draco, Fowler said mildly. I merely did not move to stop it, and you will admit you never asked me to. A curious oversight on your part. You've been holding this in reserve to use against me. Draco said in dawning horror, and Mother closed her eyes as if deeply pained. Draco, stop being a child. Your father is being more than reasonable. He is offering a trade to exert his influence to save your friend's creature in exchange for a trip with us to Ollivander's in the spirit of the deal that you and he dream on. Draco bellowed at the top of his lungs. Except he couldn't sleep that night thinking about the blue loop, of everything he knew of Buckbeak. He'd written that Sirius Black was rumoured to have escaped on the Hippogriff, the day he'd been captured and broken out of Hogwarts. That was presumably what had saved Buckbeak in the nick of time, Black's intervention, on what Draco was sure was the same day as the scheduled execution, because he'd taunted the trio and Hermione had punched him in the face over it. Add that to the ever-growing list of items, then, in a task only Draco could fully carry out, no matter how he even would try to tell another. Find Ron's old rat scabbers, turn him into Peter Pettigrew, convince Ron and Potter and Lupin of Black's innocence, keep Pettigrew from escaping Black to Voldemort and resurrecting him, convince the world of Black's innocence, get Potter adopted by Black and away from the Muggles, and, oh, yes, Uncle Sirius, if you wouldn't mind, do you think you could see your way to liberating a hippogriff on your way out? He'd taken it to escape, hadn't he? In Draco's other plan, Black wouldn't have to escape. 
they'd expose Pettigrew and keep him there until the authorities took him. Black would not leave Hogwarts again until he was a free man, and the executioner's blade had only come down on the creature's neck. Draco avoided his parents as best he could that Saturday, first pacing his room, then the cellars, and then finally flying aimlessly around the manor grounds, finding himself at his own macabre sort of crossroads, unable to trust in the blue loop to persuade him he wasn't the last hope Buckbeak realistically had. When it hadn't been him to put the thing in jeopardy in the first place, and yet Ron and Potter had put useless hours into researching the thing's defence, not just Hermione. Hagrid had been a shell of himself all year, waiting for the axe to fall, though he still always had a smile for him and a comfortable call of, There you are, come in, little dragon. Draco found himself awake early on the morning of Easter Sunday, first going through his notebooks, looking in vain for any clues to what he should do, then laying out his wand on the bed and staring at it warily in case it sensed his thoughts and retaliated. Maybe he should have tried to contact one of the Gryffindors and ask their opinion, but he knew what they would all say. Of course you have to save Buckbeak, for Buckbeak and Hagrid's sake. Or he should have tried to speak to Severus, but he knew what Severus would say just as well, in the opposite direction. He grimaced, then took the photo of himself and the Grangers at Highbury down from his wall and put it beside his wand. He got out Potter's two apology letters and put them with the photo. He looked between the memorabilia and then the wand like they were his two roads and waited for something in his mind to choose for him. But even his inner Severus voice was silent. Nothing told him what to do. He was half surprised that the photo didn't catch on fire. When Draco tried to talk himself out of going to Ollivander's, justifications were not short in coming. From, what if something worse happens than the branding of hands? What if it wrecks Ollivander's whole shop? What if mother is hurt? What if we're all bloody killed? To the simplest one he didn't want to admit to himself. What if Ollivander really did figure something out and he can take my wand away from me? He hated himself for it, but that morning he would have given a great deal to still have his two-way mirror to Sirius Black. He stared down at his bed, wand and picture, wand and picture, wand and picture. Draco, his mother's voice called up. Draco, this is the last day we can go to Ollivander's. You'll be back on the train tomorrow. Draco, are you coming? When she opened his door and walked inside, he shoved his picture of Highbury and the letters under his pillow like they were contraband, and she looked down at his wand instead with a look on her face like it was attached to her sister's hand. Draco, mother said softly, sweetheart, it's up to you, but there won't be another chance this break, and the longer you have that wand, the more you seem to change. He took his wand and followed her down the stairs to the flue where father awaited them. We have a deal, Draco warned him, stepping in the way of the fireplace to make it explicit before he made the trip. Even if this doesn't work, you will hold up your end of the bargain and get the hippogriff out of trouble. That's the deal, and... He took a deep breath. And if this doesn't work again, this is the last time you'll make this attempt. You'll leave it to me to handle it after. Father looked snarling enough that Draco knew he must be driving a good bargain. Are we understood? Father nodded silently, and they went to Diagon Alley. The streets were mostly deserted, with the sun high in the sky on a fine Easter morning. They would likely be Ollivander's only customers, and maybe he had opened his shop on a holiday just for them, and was waiting to get this over with so he could go have his Easter dinner. He would be waiting for quite a while. Draco didn't know what he'd been so scared of. Ollivander had found a solution, like hell. When they even approached the shop, the wand wouldn't let him within a block. Doing the right thing this time, it turned out, couldn't have gone more smoothly for his purposes. If only it would always play out that easily. 
Draco didn't even try to get the credit for himself once the dust had settled, and Blaze was the one to come up to him in relief, telling him the suit had been dropped and the hippogriff feed to Hagrid's care again. He knew how little the Gryffindors liked hearing him brag of his family power. Nothing went smoothly when it came to him and Hermione's plans with Black. Draco's Quidditch season being over meant he had a lot of free time. But Draco barely spoke to Hermione for the first couple of days after break anyway, on account of her having told Luna. She said you told her to spend time with me, Hermione said defensively. I thought you might have sent her to help. Draco had just slipped out. Draco fought the urge to throttle the life out of her with his bare hands. No spells needed this time. It wasn't that Draco didn't trust Luna, nor was it that she'd only just turned 13. Honestly, he didn't like the idea of putting her anywhere near danger. But when he expressed that to Hermione, she just gave him a severe look. Oh, but it's all right putting me in danger, is it, Draco? Draco didn't know what to say. Yes, it is. I've seen how much you can handle yourself by now. More than me, probably. Hermione harumphed, but looked secretly pleased. Luna was no more use than either of them, although her presence meant they were no longer the only ones at their library table. Theo hadn't been willing to sit with them, but Luna seemed more than thrilled to, even if she talked a bit much for Hermione's liking and her cheery presence took away some of the inevitable grimness to their meetings, sneaking off to Hogsmeade to see Sirius. Grim affairs in both the literal and the punning sense. Black seemed to take to her quickly, and vice versa, as she began to bring him issues of the quibbler, including back ones, and happily update him on her own very unusual aversion of events of the past twelve years of life Black had missed in the wizarding world. But, as Draco had once heard Molly Weasley say, once the cow was milked, there was no putting the milk back into the udder. Luna was a part of it now, too, of what she took to calling the rat thieves. She'd offered to spell the word thief on her and Hermione's right palms to match Draco's, before Draco and Hermione had dissuaded her of the notion. The rat thieves all sat together in the Slytherin section at the Quidditch final, they wedged in between Vince and Greg and the green grasses, who all politely greeted them, while looking like they would rather be spitting on Draco's female company if he hadn't been there. Draco wanted to tell them that he'd been hoping for the Hufflepuff section, but had been naysayed, due to Hermione's desire not to show her loyalty as fully atrophied. But if she thought it was going to keep Draco from holding up his banner, she was sorely mistaken. It was worth her nagging, when one look at it unfurled, nearly sent Potter flying into the stands. Dreamy diggory, Hermione read off it, trying to look unimpressed, although anyone had to be really, by the superb picture Luna had drawn of diggory, sparkles and all. Dreamy diggory, Draco said with satisfaction, and Hermione rolled her eyes at him. If you think this will distract him, Draco, you're wrong, she said with a sigh. This will just make him madder, more determined. Luna, I can't believe you helped him with this. Oh, but he is rather dreamy, isn't he? Luna said with a smile, while Draco tried to ignore the forlorn little glances the exiled Hermione was casting over in the direction of fiery-haired Weasleys off in the Gryffindor stands. Oh, not Tom Riddle dreamy, of course, but still dreamy. Cedric Diggory was most definitely not Tom Riddle dreamy. Not only did he cast a truly horrified look over in the direction of the Slytherin stands and the unorthodox support they were offering him, but he seemed hardly to have prepared his team very well tactically to face the crisp red machine that was the well-practised, fluid, quick-moving Gryffindor. And while Draco's banner did seem to have distracted Potter, at least enough that Draco caught him casting glances over at it every now and then. It wasn't enough to seem to keep him from his dual project, of monitoring for the snitch, while also monitoring the score. The whole school could hear Wood shouting, to keep reminding Potter 
that the score had to be by a 60-point margin before he could catch the snitch. Draco was getting a bad feeling that this was about to go much the way it had in the blue loop. At least the rat thieves had the consolation that Black had obeyed their constant aggressive reminders not to show up, however badly he wanted to. And demure as she would, Draco knew that deep down in her soul Hermione was rooting for Gryffindor as much as ever. She made the motion to cheer each one of their points scored, before stopping herself at the last minute and looking around red-cheeked behind her scarf. Katie Bell gets the quaffle for Gryffindor. Come on, Katie, come on! Weren't that ever-grating voice of Lee Jordan's from the commentator's box. The margin was waiting there, if the girl could only take it. Score it, and Gryffindor would be 90-30 up on Hufflepuff. The stage set for Potter to produce much the same feat he had against Draco. He was pathetically glad it was Diggory up there in his place waiting as the lamb to the slaughter. That slaughter beckoned like the invisible beating of dark wings, the disillusionment that had inevitably awaited any Slytherin hopes of the Quidditch Cup. She scores! She scores! Gryffindor lead by 90 points to 30! Even Draco's most dimly held hopes were dissipating already, once he had 90 to 30, and knew that was Potter's cue to produce miracles. Diggory saw the snitch first, close to the ground, just as Draco remembered from this match. But what speed the firebolt couldn't make up. Potter's inhuman hurtling power did the rest, only a red blur by the end, as he lunged past the bigger, stronger, older boy with both hands off his broom and seized the distant golden shimmer between his hands. Potter pulled out of his dive, and Griffin's door stands went mad, Ravenclaw as well. Hufflepuff and Slytherin were naturally less elated, so at least Hermione hadn't made them sit in the supposed true neutral of Ravenclaw. Draco had been the record-breaking superstar, the first seeker to catch the snitch in all three of his games since Charlie Weasley in 1986. But without the trophy to go with it, he was persona non grata again, the Slytherins streaming out of the stands around them. None of them wanted to stick around to witness the Gryffindor pile, as the players all fell on each other, with the sobbing wood hugging Potter too closely for Draco's liking, and both male and female players making an undignified heap in the mud. There was a pitch invasion like last time, and it was nice in a way, to see that all that hysterical Gryffindor glee hadn't merely been prompted by beating Slytherin on the pitch. But they had beaten them in the cup, and as professors and students alike abandoned their dignity in a mad collective ecstasy that Draco had never known for himself, he could see Potter hoisted on the shoulders of his adoring fans, Ginny Weasley staring up from right beneath him, while Ron let off red and gold fireworks beneath the twins. Draco could see, frozen on Hermione's face, the longing she dared not voice to join them, so he voiced for her. Go on, Striker, he said wearily. Celebrate, and gave her a push when she hesitated. She smiled at him weakly, and then her smile went fierce and splitting as she looked away and sprinted to join the jubilation of her house. McGonagall was the first one she hugged, Hermione's favourite professor broken down in tears along with Hagrid, while Potter's gaze was sweeping around the mania beneath him with dazed wonder, before seeming to spot Dumbledore with the cup. Draco saw the beaming smile of paternal pride on Dumbledore's face, and a flash of the man, falling from the astronomy tower, hit him in a wash of green light to drown out the red. Draco, Luna said, pulling on his arm. You don't need to stick around to save us. Luna led him by the hand out from the Slytherin stands, unashamed to hold the palm that proclaimed thief for anyone to see, even if Draco would rather not have been seen himself. Luna stroked his back while he cried behind the Quidditch broom shed, the furthest he'd made it out of range before breaking down. He told himself it was a real panic attack, and not just the tears of the loser who should have known better than ever to hope but taking a draught of peace she found waiting in his bag made him feel no more peaceful at all. 
Luna didn't seem to know what to say to be comforting, but she stroked and stroked at his back rhythmically, up and down, up and down, her calming presence more soothing than the potion to make his tears at least slow. Quidditch doesn't matter anyway, he told her. Serious Black, that's what matters. He had never known quite whether to believe Luna. When she told them, she wholeheartedly believed Black's story, but she seemed to now from how gravely she nodded. That would be a greater victory than a cop, she said softly, if we could give his life back to him. After the Quidditch Cup was awarded, Luna dropped Draco off at Severus's chambers to be sure he was all right. Severus let him in with a sigh at his swollen red face. He ended up sat before Severus's fireplace with him, reflecting to himself how it was not quite as good as the old one wrecked with fiendfire by yet another idea of Draco's that hadn't worked. He let Severus press glasses of iced water on him instead of potions for once, watching him with a sort of resigned sadness on his face. Don't pity me, Draco snapped, so much more venomously than Severus deserved, so he added, Please, don't pity me. And Severus did not stroke his back, but took a seat by his side. In ten years, Severus told him, You will not remember this ever happened. In ten years? Draco hissed before he could stop himself. I probably won't be alive, and you won't be either. Severus rolled his eyes, seeming to take this as more of his godson's usual vain dramatics. But Draco's mouth wouldn't stop running. I'm not upset because I lost at the Quidditch Cup, Severus. I'm upset because I lose at everything. I've lost it all. "'What?' Severus said with an unsuspecting sigh. "'Is it you are so aggrieved to have lost?' And for better or for worse, Draco spoke the name. "'Peter Pettigrew!' Thank you for listening to this chapter of Draco Malfoy and the House of Black, part three of the Mirror of Isidaru series by Star Bridget.